Father, we thank you for this time you've given us to be in your word. We thank you that your word stands firm in heaven forever, and that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So may you incline our hearts to do your statutes forever to the end. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 119, verses 137 to 144. The psalmist says, Righteous are you, O Yahweh, and upright are your judgments. In righteousness you have commanded your testimonies and in exceeding faithfulness. My zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. Your word is exceedingly refined. Therefore, your slave loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Trouble and anguish have found me, yet your commandments are my delight. Righteous are your testimonies forever. Give me understanding that I may live. I've titled this sermon, Passion for Life. Passion for Life. What are you passionate about? What are you zealous for? What do you have great energy and enthusiasm in pursuing? What are you eagerly interested in? What drives you? What excites you? What gets you up in the morning? What is it that makes you willing and motivated towards something? What are you passionate about? If someone were to describe you, what would they say your passions are? Would they be able to tell? In Philippians 3, verses 5 through 6, this is how the Apostle Paul described himself before his conversion. He says, Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So he was known as a Jew, a Pharisee, one who tried to keep the law, and a persecutor of the church. He was zealous persecutor of the church. In Acts chapter 22, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul, recounting his conversion as he gave uh, his defense before the Jews in Jerusalem, he says this, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but having been brought up in the city, having been instructed at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strictness of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today, I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering both men and women into prisons. He's speaking to the Jews in Jerusalem who did not acknowledge God and Christ as their Lord and Savior. So they had the wrong understanding. And there he says, he was zealous for God just as they are. And he says, I persecuted this way, referring to Christians and Christianity, binding them, delivering them into prisons. And so Paul was zealous for God, but with the wrong understanding about the Messiah with the wrong understanding about salvation, with the wrong understanding about the law, with the wrong understanding about Christianity. In Romans 10, verses 1 through 3, again, the Apostle Paul says, concerning the unbelieving Israelites, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For not knowing about the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. That tells us that it is 
possible to have a zeal or to have a passion for God and to be completely off and to be condemned for it. And if you are a believer in Christ, to not be rewarded for it. Titus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 says that Jesus Christ gave himself up for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. John 2.17, when Jesus cleanses the temple, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so there is a right zeal to have and a wrong zeal to have in terms of what you are pursuing and how you are pursuing it. And do not miss that. Paul says, as was read earlier, Titus 2.14, we have been redeemed for good works, but he adds the manner in which that is to be lived out. Zealously, passionately, living, living out for good works, good deeds. Christians, in other words, that's written to all Christians, are to be passionate about living for God. Passionate about bearing good fruit in their lives, good works. Jesus says in John 2.17, zeal for your house will consume me. He's speaking about not just his life, but his entire being. Our zeal for God must be the product of a proper understanding of Jesus Christ, of salvation, and of the Christian life, and how it is that we are to live it. And therefore, it is vitally essential that we know the whole counsel of God's word, because he has laid out for us how it is that we are to live. He has laid out for us for the church, its commission, its mandate. And he has also regulated how we are to function and operate as his church, as his body in this world, as his witnesses, as his ambassadors. And God's word is absolutely sufficient and perfect, not needing to be edited, not needing to be updated with man's so-called clever ideas about how to do things, how to accomplish God's will. God didn't ask for any of our opinions. He calls for our obedience to his will, his perfect word, his sufficient and authoritative word and will for us. And so we need not concern ourselves or live our lives or do ministry based upon pragmatism, looking at the outcomes, but rather focus our hearts on faithfulness to our righteous God and to his righteous word. That is what matters. And that is what is pleasing to God. The psalmist says in verse 139, my zeal, and he's speaking about his zeal in regards to God's word, my zeal has consumed me. In verse 140, he says, your word is exceedingly refined, therefore your slave loves it. Verse 143, your commandments are my delight. He was zealous and passionate about God and his word, it consumed his life and being. He loves it, and it was his delight in life. And so how can you be passionate about something or someone you do not know or you do not care to know about? The men and women used by God are not always those who have the most gifting. It's typically those who are consumed in zeal and passion for the glory of God and for the word of God and for the spread of the gospel. We read of the apostles. Some were fishermen, nobodies, 
yet they accomplished much, much for the Lord because of their zeal. We read of missionaries, same story. We read of the Puritans and the Reformers. And how about us? Notice also that the psalmist was deeply and rightly burdened because others did not know or obey the words of God. He says in verse 139, My zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. Are you affected at all because people don't understand the Bible? Because they don't know the truth? Because they don't know the word of God? The psalmist says, I love this book. I delight in this book. People must know this book because God and his word are right and righteous. Notice verse 137. Righteous are you, O Yahweh, and upright are your judgments. Verse 138. In righteousness you have commanded your testimonies and in exceeding faithfulness. Verse 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. In the last verse, 144, Righteous are your testimonies forever. Give me understanding that I may live. When you're passionate about something, you often speak about it. You often share about it with others. It comes to characterize you and your life. Knowing and understanding and living according to Scripture is the life or life to the psalmist. And it's appropriate and fitting that the psalmist opens and closes this stanza with declarations that God is righteous and that his word is righteous and he praises God for it and he's zealous for it. It consumed him. He was passionate about it. And so if you neglect the word of God, you're casting aside passion for God and for his word. And this passion is a close friend of conviction upon the word of God, as we saw in the last stanza. He says in verse 133, establish my steps in your word. His convictions were upon the word of God. His steps referring to his life, his conduct, his heart, his mind, his being, all of which was rooted, planted, anchored in the word of God and upon the God who establishes his steps. We took note of six heart-changing results that increasing conviction produces. Increasing conviction produces first reason. He says, he says, your word is your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul observes them in verse 129. They're wonderful, they're marvelous, they're extraordinary. Because they are so, he observes them with his whole heart. Second reason for increasing conviction that it produces longing. It also produces holiness and focus and hunger and compassion. And so we saw that if you neglect the word of God, you're casting aside conviction for your life. And this week, our focus is on if you neglect the word of God, you're casting aside passion for God in your life. So how can you cultivate a proper passion or zeal for God and his word? We'll take note of seven indispensable keys. And I'll reveal them as we work through the text. Number one, the first indispensable key to cultivating a proper zeal or passion for God and his word is that you have to, verses 137 and 138, you have to know who God is. You have to know who God is. Again, verses 137 and 138, he says, Righteous are you, O Yahweh, and upright are your judgments. In righteousness you have commanded your testimonies and in exceeding faithfulness. The psalmist knows who God is. He says, Righteous are you, O Yahweh. And because Yahweh is righteous, his judgments are upright. They're straight. 
They're right. They're morally excellent. And in righteousness, he says, he commanded his testimonies in exceeding faithfulness. If you know who God is, you will also know how God acts and how God works. So what does it mean that God is righteous? Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it this way. He says, holiness manifested in God's dealings with us. That is what righteousness is. Holiness manifested in God's dealings with us. It is the character and nature of God that always demonstrates God is doing that which is right. Righteousness or justice are the carrying out of his holiness and the expression of it in the government of the world. In other words, all that God does is right because God is all righteous. And Moses says of Yahweh in Deuteronomy 32, verses 3 and 4, he says, For I proclaim the name of Yahweh, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Psalm 92, verse 15, the psalmist there says, Declare that Yahweh is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Psalm 7, verse 17, I will give thanks to Yahweh according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of Yahweh Most High. So what does knowing that God is righteous have to do with God's judgments? Because the psalmist says in verse 137, he says, Righteous are you, O Yahweh, and upright are your judgments. Because God is absolutely righteous, he therefore demonstrates divine justice, perfect justice. God's righteousness cannot be understood apart from his determination to punish sin, to punish all that is, all that which is unrighteous. The justice of God is an expression of his holy character. God would not be righteous and holy if he did not punish sin. Upright are his judgments. Genesis 18.25 says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do justice? Jeremiah 9 verse 24 says, But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh who shows loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares Yahweh. And what are the implications of this? Hebrews 9.27 is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Revelation 20, verse 15, if anyone's name was not written or found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What does this undeniably affirm is true from God's word? That judgment is certain. Not only is judgment certain, but hell is real. An eternal lake of fire awaits those who do not repent and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. How then can a righteous God save such unrighteous sinners? Or to put it another way, how can a sinner be saved from a just God? Our sins must be paid for. Your sins must be paid for. And we need the perfect righteousness of another. Because there's none righteous, not even one. The only one who can pay for our sins would need to be a sinless one in the flesh. And that is Jesus Christ. 
the only one who can credit his perfect righteousness to our account is the one who lived a perfectly righteous life under the law. And again, that is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can satisfy the demands of God's justice, and he did that through his death. And he is the only one who can satisfy the demands of God's holiness, and he did that through his perfect life. Therefore, he's the only one who can forgive and save those who place their faith in him. And so God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Second Corinthians 5.21 sums this up. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus is the only way for a sinner to be saved from a just God and thus the wrath of God. He is the only mediator between God and men. And he didn't just live and die, but also rose from the dead, demonstrating his power over sin, death, and Satan. And Romans 4.25 says that Christ was delivered over on account of our transgressions and was raised on account of our justification. The only way to be justified is through faith in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. His life, death, resurrection, his penal substitutionary atonement. He takes away the actual penalty that we deserve. He's our substitute. He took our place. He atoned and covered all of our sins fully and completely and for his propitiatory sacrifice. He satisfied God's wrath upon our sins. The only way to be justified is through faith in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. Acts 17.31, Paul says, He, referring to God, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he determined, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. There will be a future judgment with Jesus, the risen Lord and Savior, as the righteous judge for all. Psalm 5, verse 5 says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all workers of iniquity. Psalm 7, verse 11 and 12, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and already prepared it. Psalm 9, verse 8, Yahweh will judge the world in righteousness. He will render justice for the peoples with equity. And don't be confused about what equity means. Equity is not sameness or same outcomes. It's speaking about fairness according to what you deserve. God is righteous, and all of his judgments are righteous. And so how can this help us to cultivate passion or zeal for God in his word? As Christians, all we have to do is look to the cross. Look to Christ. Remember what he has done for us. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless, to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. You can also praise God and say, my heart is filled with thankfulness to him who bore my pain, who plumbed the depths of my disgrace and gave me life again, who crushed my curse of sinfulness and clothed me in his light and wrote his law of righteousness with power upon my heart. How does knowing God's righteousness and justice stir up within us a greater passion? It's the gospel of salvation. 
It's the gospel of salvation, knowing that God punished His Son for us, pierced His Son for our transgressions, was pleased to crush His Son for our iniquities, so that by His wounds we are healed as He justifies the many. And in verse 138, because the psalmist knows who God is, he also knows that in righteousness, in accord with God's holy, right, and just standard, that God has given his testimonies in exceeding faithfulness. In other words, God will be faithful and true to all of his promises. He has never failed on any of them. And furthermore, all of his testimonies are right. Do you know this God? This just and righteous God? So the first indispensable key to cultivating a proper passion and zeal for God and His Word is that you have to know who God is. The second indispensable key is that you have to care about God. Not just know about who He is, but you have to care about Him. You have to care about His name, His honor. Verse 139, He says, My zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. The psalmist has a zeal for God and his word. This is seen in his fitting response to his adversaries who have forgotten God's words. And the word forgotten here means to cease to care. It is a deliberate ignoring and rejecting of God's word. His adversaries have no care in the world for God and his word. This is complete disregard for the truth. This is complete thoughtlessness for the God who created them in his image. Those who no longer want anything to do with God, they have become their own God. And so the psalmist, because he personally cares about God, because he is captivated by the righteousness of his God, he says, my zeal has consumed me. Zeal is a fiery passion for God's glory, for the honor of God's name that leads to doing something. Again, zeal is a fiery passion for God's glory, for the honor of God's name that leads to doing something. The psalmist earnestly loves God above all. And so that which dishonors God affects him greatly. He says it consumed him. Consumed is a Hebrew verb stem that expresses the bringing about of a state. And it is his zeal for God and his word that brings about this state within his own heart. It literally destroys him. It means to put an end to. He has a deep, deep care for God in light of his adversary's deep, deep disregard for God. Again, John 2.17 says, Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus had a deep, deep care for his father's house and his father's worship, proper and right worship. The Apostle Paul, during his second missionary journey, when he saw the whole city of Athens given over to idolatry, it was said of him that his spirit was being provoked within him. Acts 17, 16 says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, speaking of Timothy and Silas, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So what did that lead Paul to do? In the very next verse, Acts 17, 17, so he was reasoning. This is what Paul did as his heart was provoked from the idolatry that he saw around him. He was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. 
It led him to tell everybody about Christ. And what are the potential consequences of lacking a zealous love and care for God in his word? Well, what did Jesus say to the lukewarm church in Laodicea? Revelation 3, 15 and 16. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Revelation 3.19, speaking to the same church in Laodicea, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. We are called to be zealous for good works, zealous for the Lord, zealous for his glory, zealous for his honor. Jesus says to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love, Therefore, remember where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. But if not, I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. He's saying that even though they maintained all the right external behaviors and held to sound doctrine, their service to the Lord was no longer prompted by their original fiery love and zeal for him. He wants them to think back to the first days of their conversion, their new life in Christ, to remember and return to that sort of joy, that love, that hunger, that passion, that zeal that they once had for him. And this is part of the benefits and blessings of of taking communion regularly, to remember that, to remember Christ and what he's done for us. We also need to know that being zealous for the Lord will will not make us popular. The Pharisees hated Jesus for his zeal, and they crucified him. The apostles were zealous, and they were persecuted, beaten, imprisoned, and martyred. The prophet Elijah says in 1 Kings 19, verse 10, I have been very zealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, pulled down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Being zealous for the Lord will not make you popular. Being rightly zealous for the Lord will make you a target of opposition and persecution. Which is why Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It is true that apathy or lack of interest or concern hates zeal. Why are churches removing judgment and sin from their pulpits and from their teaching? Why are they even watering down and distorting the gospel, which is not their message to tamper with? They do not truly have a zeal or passion for the things of God. They have a greater zeal or passion for their own self-interest, for their own message, for their own popularity. If we want to cultivate a proper passion or zeal for God and His Word, we have to be those who care about God and have His interests in mind. And when that is dishonored, it should affect us. The third indispensable key to cultivating a proper passion or zeal for God and His Word is that you have to know the nature of God's Word. You have to know the nature of God's Word. Verse 140, 
Solomon says, your word is exceedingly refined, therefore your slave loves it. Refined means pure, proven, tested, and worthy of trust and belief. And because it is refined and pure and tested, that means it is without defect, without blemish, without error. And the psalmist adds that it is exceedingly or greatly to the highest degree true and trustworthy. Psalm 12, verse 6 says, The words of Yahweh are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the ground, refined seven times. Psalm 19, verse 8, The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. What is your understanding of the nature of God's word? And is that why you love it? Notice the psalmist says, Your word is exceedingly refined, therefore your slave loves it. He loves the word of God for what it is. Truth as truth. Purity as purity. God as God. And he also knows that the pure nature of God's word has a direct impact on his own purity. Psalm 119 verse 9 here, he said earlier in this psalm, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. And Peter says in 1 Peter 2.2, like newborn babies, Long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Are you confident in the nature and in the power of God's word? That it is unadulterated, unvarnished, undefiled, holy, pure, clean, tested, proven, right, and worthy of trust and belief. And also has the power to purify you and sanctify you. To cultivate a proper passion and zeal for God and His Word, you have to know the nature of God's Word. The fourth indispensable key to cultivating a proper passion or zeal for God and His Word is that you have to, verse 141, you have to know yourself. You have to know yourself. The psalmist not only understands that he is a slave that belongs to God, verse 140, he says, your word is exceedingly refined, therefore your slave loves it. But he also knows that he is small and despised. Look at verse 141. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. He's saying that he is insignificant. He's lowly. He's speaking as one who is humble. He's not above being despised by others. Which means to be looked down upon with disdain, with hatred. He's not entitled to anything. And he doesn't have a self-righteous, pretentious, pompous attitude about himself. He's humble. And he understands why he's despised. He understands that his adversaries may treat him with disdain. And he's not above it. Though it may be unjust. They may despise him, but that doesn't cause him to stop remembering God and his precepts. His rules for personal conduct. It doesn't affect how he lives because he has a proper view of himself and that he is living for God. Do you have an elevated view of yourself and what you think you deserve? No harm should befall me. No disdain should come upon me. If you do, it may become a source of complaining rather than of faithfully carrying on doing the will of God. The fifth indispensable key to cultivating a proper passion or zeal for God and His Word is that you have to, 
you have to, again, have conviction. Verse 142. It says, your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your law is truth. That's what the psalmist has conviction about. He has conviction that God's righteousness is eternal, that it is always and forever. He also has a conviction that God's word is absolute objective truth. No matter what is happening, the psalmist is certain that God never changes. That his standard of what is right and just never changes. And that his word never changes. It is always true. And if you are unconvinced or uncertain of these truths, you'll struggle to find any sort of true assurance. You will have difficulty understanding how you are to live your life. You will come to the conclusion that all is vanity. But to have the proper knowledge and understanding of God and His Word and to have confidence and conviction upon it, that will cultivate a proper passion and zeal. And if I rest in and upon these inviolable and indestructible truths, I won't be shaken. Fear not, I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed. For I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, cause you to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. How firm a foundation, O saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. You have conviction upon this word. Conviction begets and cultivates passion and zeal. The sixth indispensable key to cultivating a proper passion and zeal for God and his word is that you have to understand life. Verse 143, you have to understand life. Because God is righteous and his law is everlastingly righteous and true, this conviction becomes a comfort to him in times of affliction. Here we see that the psalmist understands life in a fallen world and that he also understands life with God. Notice that he doesn't need to go looking for trouble and anguish. Rather, it will find him. He says, trouble and anguish have found me. Yet your commandments are my delight. Trouble describes external distress. Anguish describes internal distress. Trouble without, anguish within. Both realities, guess what, are an inevitable part of life. Whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, whether you're doing the will of God or not doing the will of God, we need to understand that so that it does not bring us down. The fall of mankind under the sovereignty of God has rendered trouble and anguish as normal, as natural, and also necessary. Job 5.7, for man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. However, the good news for the believer is that we have something in the midst of those realities that is our delight. We have the commandments of God to guide us, to strengthen us, to shine light for us, to benefit and bless us. Therefore, we are to respond differently to trouble and anguish, knowing that God uses all things for good, including trouble and anguish, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. John MacArthur has said, The ABCs of trouble, A, affliction, B, builds, C, character. Affliction builds character. And not only does affliction build character, make you more Christ-like, but it also gives you assurance of your eternal security in Christ. 
He says, trouble is where you find your faith being tested. It proves your faith. And so therefore, embrace trials. A Christian can find joy in the trial because the proof of the faith that he or she possesses is manifest in the trial, and that is more precious than gold, to know that you're saved and that your salvation is real. That is why the psalmist says, in the midst of trouble and anguish, yet your commandments are my delight. True zeal is inflamed with difficulties. Do you understand this? Do you understand life in a fallen world? Do you understand that God is sovereignly working in your life through troubles, through anguish, to bring about perseverance of faith so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? And so you can consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. If you want to cultivate a proper passion and zeal for God in His Word, you have to understand this about life so that you're not surprised or taken captive. Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you. Rather, you would see those things and capitalize and embrace them so that the sanctifying work of God in our lives would prove true. The seventh indispensable key is that you have to, verse 144, live according to God's word. Live according to God's word. He says, righteous are your testimonies forever. Give me understanding that I may live. He began this stanza with, righteous are you, O Yahweh. And he closes with, righteous are your testimonies forever. God is righteous and his word is righteous And so the psalmist knows that he must live according to it. He asks God, give me understanding that I may live. He equates living life with understanding and living according to God's word. Jesus says in John 10, verse 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's present and future abundant life. To live according to God's word is to truly live. To be blessed because you are living life in a way that is pleasing and glorifying to God. The psalmist wants God to grant him more understanding of his righteous word. More understanding of his truth. So that he may live righteously according to it. John 1, 1 John 2.29 says, If you know that he, referring to Christ, If you know that Christ is righteous, You know that everyone also who does righteousness has been born of him. So if you want to cultivate a proper passion or zeal for God and His Word, you have to live according to God's Word. And in doing so, you are validating that you have eternal life, that you have been born again from above. And to know that is to obey God and to live a spiritually abundant life now. So how can you cultivate a proper passion or zeal for God and His Word? You've taken note of seven indispensable keys. You have to know who God is. You have to know who God is, the God of Scripture as He's revealed Himself. You have to care about God. You have to care about Him. Some of us might just want to know more about Him, but it doesn't change our heart. It doesn't change our affections for Him. You have to care about Him. You have to know the nature of God's Word, what it is, in of itself and what it accomplishes is exceedingly refined, pure, and it purifies you. You have to know yourself. 
You have to be humble. You have to understand that you will be despised, you will be persecuted because you are desiring to live godly in Christ Jesus. And you have to have conviction. Conviction upon God and His Word. And you have to understand life. Trouble and anguish will find you. You will encounter various trials. But you can consider it joy if you have the right perspective. And you have to live according to God's Word. Not just know God, not just care about God, but you have to intentionally, actively live according to God's word, which is right and righteous and produces righteousness in you. These are these keys are all connected together. And if you neglect the word of God, you're casting aside passion for God and for his word. We are called to be zealous, passionate for good works. It's not just if you're on fire for Jesus, then be zealous for good works. It's to the church, to the saints. We are to be zealous for good works and passion for life in serving God and his people and making him known. And so may our ultimate consuming passion in life be the glory of God. We can ask ourselves, are we passionate about God? Are we passionate about his glory making him known? Is that what we're zealous for? Fiery passion about God and His glory? Do we have great energy, enthusiasm in pursuing more of God? Are we eagerly interested in God? The psalmist says, give me understanding that I may live. What drives and excites you? What is it that makes you willing and motivated towards something? I pray that would be the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it accomplishes in us by your spirit. May your spirit is living and active, and it will sanctify us. Whether increase our zeal and passion for you and for your word, increase in us a greater knowledge and understanding of who you are, a greater understanding about life. Help us to be those who would walk obediently to your word. Increase our conviction upon it. Transform our lives by it that we may make you known with great passion and zeal. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.